and welcome to the Forbes India cover story podcast series in association with the indicas.com. My name is Abhishek and as regular listeners might know uh, this series is about the cover story where the author of the cover story talks about his experience of covering that story and this issue's uh, cover story is on the world's most powerful people on earth. So go check that issue out and this time we are going to do something slightly different. We are going to talk instead on a special report on Afghanistan by senior editor Dinesh Narayanan and he traveled to the troubled land for this assignment and he's here with us uh, joining on Skype from Delhi. Hi Dinesh, good to have you again. Hi Abhishek, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks and uh, to begin with, before we get into the story, we, we all do know that you are a journalist and it's part of your job to go on interesting assignments but what was your first reaction when you were asked for this or or did you did you volunteer for this oh i was certainly excited about this and i mean without doubt doubt it's been the most fascinating assignment i have ever been to in my entire career right. i mean this is the first time i have been to a conflict zone and uh, believe me you it is it is a fascinating country from the moment you get down till you leave you will never have enough of that place i mean it's not just because of the conflict there but afghanistan itself is a fascinating country and very warm people so so what took you to afghanistan what is the story about and what was the objective behind it in fact if you look over the past uh, two and a half three years of forbes india's first uh, three years of forbes india's existence we have been doing country reports at least one every year so we did a country report on south africa we did a country report on china mm-hmm. and this year we thought that afghanistan would be a good place to start because uh, indian involvement in afghanistan is uh, reaching a critical stage where we are a consortium led by the state owned uh, uh, steel authority of india is bidding for an iron ore mine in a place called hajigak which is in the Bamiyan province of Afghanistan. Now, Bamiyan province of Afghanistan is quite famous because of the huge uh, giant Buddha statues which were blown up by Taliban during their regime. Also, another reason was that this year, the international troop withdrawal led by America started in July this year. In 2014, Afghanistan also goes to elections when President Karzai steps down. Right. So uh, we thought that it would be an interesting idea to look at Afghanistan as a place because Afghanistan has a lot of potential economically and uh, it is a major it could become a major transit hub for uh, fuel from central asia like natural gas from central asia which has plenty of it to south and southeast asia which is short of the uh, short of fuel only problem is that uh, the pipelines have to go through Afghanistan and Pakistan then come to India which means uh, going through conflicted regions but overall taking all things into consideration Afghanistan is a critical country in a critical region mm-hmm. and we thought that it would be very interesting to look at that country that's why we decided to do a story on Afghanistan right dinesh in these a couple of minutes that you spoken i get the sense uh, like many readers would that like we have india we have two indias everybody likes to call one is bharat and the other is india which is growing at x percent and there is a substantial population which is poor so are there more than one afghanistans uh, how, how is for instance kandahar different from kabul because to put it in a very cliched manner uh, if there were a word association test and if you were to ask me to think the first thing that comes to mind when i say afghanistan it's bombs or maybe terrorism 
So is there something beyond terrorism in Afghanistan or how is it? How is the country split, the two groups or maybe multiple groups if there are any? There are certainly different ethnic groups in Afghanistan. I mean, the largest of them are the Pashtuns who live in the mostly concentrated in the southern and uh, southeastern parts of Afghanistan, which border Pakistan and some parts of Iran, especially provinces like Kandahar, Helmand, Herat, Khost, those provinces where the Pashtuns live. And a lot of Pashtuns live in Pakistan also. In fact, one of the age-old conflicts which have existed in that region is of the Durand line, which separates Pakistan and Afghanistan. And the Pashtuns have never really acknowledged the division in their region. So they believe that the land up to Quetta in Pakistan belongs to Pashtuns and it's called the, informally called the Pashtunistan. Most of the Taliban are Pashtuns and their headquarters is at in Quetta, what they call the Quetta Shura, headed by Mullah Muhammad Omar. He is sort of the father figure of Taliban, the supreme leader of the Taliban. That is one major ethnic group in Afghanistan. The others are towards the north. There are Tajiks, there are Uzbeks, there are Hazaras, uh, and there are also a substantial number of nomadic tribes called the Kuchis. So are these the ones who are actually controlling the country? For instance, when you speak about uh, economic development, I'm sure definitely these are not the ones who bring about economic development. So is there the other Afghanistan that uh, is not reported about as much? No, not really. Not really in the sense you see in India. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, more than 50% of Afghanistan's people are very, very poor. So about 36% of Afghanistan is considered to be below poverty line, which is they live uh, at about less than $25 a month. What do they do for a living? Like We know that, for instance, opium trade is considered to be one of the highest earners in, in Afghanistan. But beyond that, how does a common man live there? Does he even feature in the country's prospects in the future, the common man? And what does he do at the moment? In fact, the entire country, one problem with Afghanistan is the large parts of the country are desert, arid land. And there are a few provinces which have good uh, agricultural prospects. But there is a lot of farming in Afghanistan and most people depend on subsistence uh, farming. Of course, Afghanistan's biggest exports are also agricultural exports. I mean, opium also is an agricultural export in a sense. There are estimates that about... 30% 30% of Afghanistan's GDP or 40% of uh, Afghanistan's GDP is, comes from opium. I don't know how far true that number is, whether it is high or low, simply because opium is mostly grown in the Helmand uh, province and around it. And very little of that revenue comes to the government. And the farmers there also do not get a very high price for it. So the value which you attach to opium in the international market is not what the farmers get there. And most of it is taken by the middlemen or the warlords. You cannot really estimate that percentage with any amount of accuracy. So is one of the reasons for this and many other failures in Afghanistan that the government there hasn't been able to set even the minutest security standards or standards for people to live peacefully because of the obvious reasons like the ethnic groups that you spoke about. But at the moment, with all the international help, how strong is the government today as compared to, let's say, 10 years ago? When we talk about has the situation improved there, yes, you don't see war, you don't see conflict in every street corner. It's not that people are sitting inside their homes. 
Kabul is a bustling city. In spite of the recent state of attack, it's a very unsafe city. You know, never know what is going to happen. In the evenings, kidnappings are common, especially if you're a foreigner, especially in, on the outskirts of uh, Kabul. So the security situation is not absolutely not encouraging. On the road, you see a lot of people, you know, with uh, Kalashnikovs and uh, rocket launchers and pickup trucks mounted with machine guns. The sight of this kind of unnerves you initially, and you see the pickets everywhere. The buildings have uh, 15 to 20 feet high walls. Entrance to every building has these uh, different kinds of sandbags, and obviously soldiers everywhere, and private security guards everywhere. So the sense you get in Kabul, at least, is that, you know, this is a sort of city under siege. But, of course, like any conflicted in city, there are these small pockets of enjoyment there, like a place called the Gandamak Lodge in Kabul, which is a sort of a hotspot for uh, expatriates, especially uh, foreign journalists and UN and uh, other officials who come there for an evening drink one of the few places which are licensed to sell alcohol in Kabul. Right. Uh, Dinesh, tell us, tell us uh, about uh, what kind of food that you had. Of course, the diplomats will have drinks at places where uh, common people like me will not be able to afford. But if I happen to go to Afghanistan, so what are the things that you might want to try there? Oh, you can uh, you can try food anywhere uh, on the street or small restaurants anywhere in Kabul. You can walk into any place and have food. I especially like their palau, which is what you would call a pulao, but very simply made, what they call the kabli palau, which is essentially rice with some raisins and a bit of vegetables. That's about it. And, of course, meat. Uh, it's awesome. And, of course, I, the most I like is something called shorba. Shorba is, uh, it's like the mutton paya which you get in, say, Hyderabad, but thicker than that, and with chickpeas in it. You bake what they call as nani khash, like tandoori roti, but, uh, you know, much more tastier than what you get in Delhi, say, for example. Ah, that is high standards, because the ones who are <laughs> listening and who are from Delhi or who have ever been to places like Kareem's in Delhi, and if you say that, of course, it's believable because Afghanistan is also known for its food. Yes, yes, of course. Kebabs are awesome, the chakri kebab, but they're much simply done uh, in the sense that they don't use very much spice, but still the meat is very well cooked. I want to go back to the point which you were making earlier yeah. about Afghan security. Now, one of the things we have to consider when we talk about Afghanistan is that there is not much industry in Afghanistan. There are some small-scale works here and there in Afghanistan, but there are no big industries in Afghanistan, and there is no capacity in Afghanistan to build these. The effort over the past 10 years by the international community has been widely criticized there as well, in the sense that in the past 10 years, in areas where they have not been able to sort of establish control, which can be maintained over a long period of time. So wherever the international community has been, they have a base and they have able to control, say, large parts of a province. The moment they withdraw, it is like a vacuum where insurgency can kind of creep in. And next month, uh, in December, when the, the Bonn conference, the second Bonn conference happens in Bonn in Germany, that will be the time when the international community might give a clearer roadmap and make a commitment until 2024. That is another decade of involvement in Afghanistan. And what would be the nature of the involvement there 
all these things would have to be considered because Europe itself is not in very good shape. America itself is not in very good shape. Right. So the kind of uh, economic involvement, economic support and military support that is going to remain in Afghanistan will be a question mark. Even even uh, I had met with the second vice president, Karim Khalili, he was saying that, you know, what we need is a clear picture of what would be the kind of international involvement until 2024. And he said that we clearly need that support. But uh, Dinesh, having said that, there have been, like your article states, 50 countries have been involved in stabilizing Afghanistan so far with little success. Yeah. So what would bring that success? And the picture that you said the politician wanted, who will draw that picture? Will it be Afghanistan or how long will this support from external countries be around? Before that, one major issue there which I felt was that there is a lot of wastage of money there. For instance, Americans spend about $125 billion a year on Afghanistan. And all that is not aid. It is to maintain their troops, maintain their people, maintain everything. So the total spending is about $125 billion a year. At the same time, the total aid to Afghanistan is about the committed aid to Afghanistan from 2002 to 2012 is about $90 billion. Of that, only $57 billion have gone to Afghanistan. Of the $57 billion, only 18% of the $57 billion is what the Afghans get to spend themselves. The rest of it is spent and managed by the agencies themselves, like the USAID or UNDP, all these programs put together. Then the issue is that how this money is spent, what others are bringing in. For example, India has spent two billion dollars in is spending two billion dollars in Afghanistan. I think much more productively than any other country has done. The U.S., for example, has spent two billion dollars over the past two years only to increase its uh, civilian presence by about 720 people. I'm talking about American civilians. So just to maintain such a small staff or such a small number of civilian people. Americans have had to spend $2 billion. I mean, this is from the report of the Special Inspector General on Afghanistan. And uh, India has spent $2 billion in doing small things like building school buildings, like building small bridges, training war widows, or uh, digging war wells, very small projects in distant villages. So that is one other reason why Indians are so warmly welcomed there. India has a lot of advisors in the government, it has a lot of others working in provinces. Indian doctors are there in many areas. Indian engineers are building roads in many places. And, and India's stand, the political stand has been neutral. What is the impact? In, okay, let me rephrase it. If you were to bump into an Afghan, what would his perception be of, let's say, India who has a neutral stand, Pakistan and then the US, who clearly have their own stands? People across the board I have met from common people, taxi drivers to shopkeepers to senior administration officials, they all universally like India and they are all very warm towards India. At the same time, there is a deep mistrust of uh, Pakistan and now America. Six, seven years ago, more people were accepting of American presence there than they do now. And Pakistan's mistrust is because one of the reasons what people say is that they have a big brotherly attitude. So that big brotherly attitude is deeply resented by Afghans. Some of the people are of the opinion and experts that India should rather have a dialogue with Taliban 
keeping a long-term prospect in view, considering that nobody knows Afghanistan better than the Taliban who currently have their presence there. So some say that India is wasting time by talking, trying to have a dialogue with the government there, taking the long-term view. What, what do you think? It might be true. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, I am not an expert on this area simply because I have not covered Afghanistan enough. But speaking to people who have been there for a very long time, they all say that it just makes sense to talk to the Taliban simply because, one, they are ready to talk. Especially people like Mullah Omar apparently are ready to talk because they are fed up of Pakistan, they are fed up of the meddling. Certainly people like Mullah Omar are more nationalistic and they want the foreign elements out of Afghanistan. Most of the people in Afghanistan would say that it would be better if we decide for ourselves what is good. The international community give us the support in technical assistance, economic assistance, in building up capacities, and let us let us help ourselves. The upcoming elections in two years' time could probably be the start of it. It could be, but you know there is no specific time for something like this to start. But de facto, it will happen then simply because international community's involvement will reduce drastically. Their physical presence will reduce drastically, so a lot of it would come back to Afghanistan people, and that is what the international community is doing. They are handing over little by little, say, security to the Afghan National Police and Afghan Army. Now, obviously, that is one reason why you see more number of attacks also happening simply because the army is not equipped, the army is not uh, experienced enough or trained enough to handle highly motivated and uh, trained insurgents. It will also de facto happen that the Afghans will start uh, using resources on their own, but that does not mean that international political interference will reduce. For example, U.S. will continue to have that political influence, they will continue to have bases there and military presence, some amount of military presence there, because uh, U.S. considers it as a strategic country which needs to be in its control, some amount of control. Uh, for example, some time ago, Afghanistan tried to have a trilateral strategic agreement with Pakistan and Iran, but uh, the U.S. kind of torpedoed it. People tell me that U.S. very clearly told Afghanistan that this cannot happen, simply because Iran is one corner of the trilateral agreement. So they have that kind of influence, and it is very, very difficult to see they reducing that influence because it suits them. Absolutely. And I, I guess there will be enough news that will be coming from Afghanistan, both good and bad, because a lot is happening there. Would you go back to that place to do a follow-up story, Dinesh, if you were given a ticket to do that again? Any day. Any day. Any day. <laughs> any day I would go back. And this time I would like to go to the south. Uh, I would really like to go there. That is where the conflict right now is. And the entire Afghanistan problem lies there and it has to be solved there. Great, Dinesh. Best of luck if at all that happens because this report that is out there that I have read displays not just what the ground reality is. It's a mixture of about what common people think about uh, countries like Pakistan, India, US, what is India's stand and what would it mean for Afghanistan when the troop withdrawals start and what does the outgoing President Karzai, what, what does that situation bring about for Afghanistan in the coming years? So all the listeners, uh, please pick this issue up. Of course, the cover story is about the world's most powerful people, which is one of uh, the most interesting stories that Forbes puts out. And also somewhere in the middle, there is this special report. Would love to know your comments. Uh, you can find this podcast on Forbes India's website. That's business.in.com as well as theindicast.com. And you can subscribe to Forbes by 
messaging Forbes to 51818. That's 51818. Thanks, Dinesh. Thank you very much, Abhishek.